This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU, elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Longwoods International, one of the premier research firms in the travel and tourism space in the world. Longwoods produces groundbreaking research, thought-leading insights, and excellent counsel and services to DMOs in areas such as visitor research, advertising effectiveness, image research, and their brand new resident sentiment study. Learn more about this new breakthrough product and more at longwoods-intl.com. And now on to our show. Our guest today is Jack Johnson. As Chief Advocacy Officer, Jack manages the overall public policy operations at Destinations International, including member advocacy, education, and training, development of destination tools and best practices, coalition work with peer organizations, industry research, and related public affairs activities. Jack brings unrivaled experience developing innovative strategies, policy solutions, and civic consensus for government, not-for-profits, and small businesses. During his previous tenure with Choose Chicago, Jack oversaw public policy, research, membership, and strategic partnership efforts. He played a leading role in the extensive reforms of the McCormick Place Convention Center and the Chicago Convention and Tourism Bureau, resulting in a new convention center operating model with both a travel industry and a citywide civic perspective. He was intimately involved in the merger of the Chicago Convention and Tourism Bureau and the Chicago Office of Tourism, resulting in the maximization of their resources, unifying the uh, message, and embedding the organization into the city's economic development strategy. In addition, in his final year at Choose Chicago, Jack also served as Choose Chicago's Chief Administrative Officer. Jack Johnson, welcome to DMOU. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and uh, it's it's been a fun year. We uh, we have been bouncing back and forth at at industry conferences around the country, and when the two of us get together at one of those, uh, it, it's always fun to watch the evolution. And we'll talk about this as we go forward. But the evolution of where uh, you really believe DMOs need to be moving forward. And that's going to be the crux of our conversation today on DMOU. Before we get started, though, uh, let's talk for a moment about Destination International's Advocacy Summit, which is coming to my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin on November 12th through the 14th. Last year's summit in Philadelphia was simply stellar. Congratulations. What can we expect from this year's event in the Mad City? First off, we're really excited about being in uh, Madison. I think uh, Destination Madison has been one of the excellent examples of how to do advocacy from a DMO perspective, so it's good to connect with them. Also great to be in a, a state capital. But you'll get hopefully a bigger and better version of what we gave last year. Um, we'll cover some of the basic stuff, political threats that are out there, stuff we're finding uh, through our quorum analysis, a couple examples of what we call flashpoint politics, people who get their brand taken away. In this case, we're going to look at um, what happens when the president of the United States takes a slam at your brand? So we're looking at uh, Baltimore and uh, Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this community cornerstone concept, uh, the community shared value, um, and how that plays out. Take on some bigger issues like destination development and sustainability. And then I'm really excited we have a marketplace of ideas. So we are actually going to have, in total, I believe, 13 sessions, two shirt sleeves, and 24 breakout sessions, many of which will be hosted by experts in various aspects of the field, including Longwoods. 
All right. Yeah, I, I've had a chance to see the, the draft agenda. It looks fabulous, and we can't wait to uh, welcome you to Madison, Wisconsin. So let's get to uh, the questions. Uh, you have three plus your bonus round, so here's your first. As passionate observers of the DMO space, you and I both have seen a marked increase in attacks on DMO funding and, in some cases, challenging the very contracts for destination marketing services that have been in place for decades in our communities. What do you believe is behind this disturbing trend that is decidedly anti-destination marketing? It's a few things. For one, I think we have the loss of what I would call the ownership generation. When I was still in Chicago and I was working on behalf of Choose Chicago, I could go to the state capitol and talk to the Speaker of the House who had been there forever. He's still there. He's been there since the 80s. Um, knew all about McCormick Place, knew all about forming of the Convention Bureau and the, and the expansions and the tourism and Navy Pier and all that stuff. Um, he is a rare exception. The, the generation that built CVBs, that built convention centers, and the generation that followed them that were following on their lead pretty much has faded away. And we have a new generation, younger people who have not been invested, they, have, they don't have really ownership over building these, these infrastructure or building this feature. Interesting point. And you have such high turnover in politics now, whether it's term limits or it's just the wide electoral swings we've seen in the last decade, that you have people that you need to educate and you have people, like I say, who don't have ownership. It's not like they sponsored the bill to create the convention center or whatever. So I think that's one thing. And I think it really forces destination organizations to spend a lot of time talking to their elected officials. Um, but the bigger issue, though, I think is is just money. Government revenues um, are not increasing at the same pace as expected government expenditures, uh, whether it's pension liabilities, whether it's infrastructure liabilities, bonds and stuff that have been sold, whether it's uh, contract conditions that they have. They're not seeing the regular revenues um, flow at the at the same rate as their expenses are. So you've got a push going on, which means they have to do one or two things. They have to cut expenditures or they actually have to um, um, raise revenues. And politicians are by nature uh, risk averse and they don't like to raise taxes, particularly taxes on their constituents. So um, they're looking for money that they can move from one place to the other. And destination organizations are that. Um, and the third, they're looking for tax sources that they can raise that don't directly impact their uh, constituents. And we have done a great job of selling visitor-related fees and taxes as being paid for by visitors, not residents. So that makes them very appealing. So let me follow up with, with a thought, though. In many cases, the attack on a DMO, you know, you're talking about money, that our cities, our counties are cash-strapped. And I get that. But in a lot of cases, we're talking less than a million dollars. You know, in, in the case of Stillwater, Oklahoma, I think we were talking, I don't know, seven or $800,000. And, and I know that sounds like a lot of money to Joe Public and to maybe a freshman legislator or city council person, but this isn't a lot of money. Is this because they're pandering to a unsophisticated electorate? Or is it they're just really scrapping for every penny? Um, I think it's a mixture of two things. Uh, one, they are scrapping for every penny. When you're looking for, and again, I'll use the case of Chattanooga, um, you have one elected official there who has been persistently attacking the destination organization. 
it's not a lot of money to write. Right. But it's a regular fee of money that happens over years. And what he wants to do is is sell bonds to fund school improvements. So a million a year may not be enough right off the bat, but if he can lock that in for the next 20 years, um, he can sell bonds. And then the second thing, I think they don't understand what a destination organization do or why it's important. We have spent a lot of time the last couple of decades getting elected officials to understand the importance of bringing in money from the outside, but they don't get the connection between that and the destination organization and why we should be just marketing. They don't understand the depth of brand development, brand support and, and defense of the brand. So you got that disconnect, You're looking at something they don't understand and it's got a million dollars if I was a staff person still on staff in Springfield, Illinois, um, I'd go right at it. Yeah. Well, that segues perfectly into question number two, which is one of the most common rationales that government uses to beat us over the head with is that destination marketing isn't a core service where police, fire, education, and the homeless condition is. And that's a tough one to argue. You and I were both at the Virginia uh, Association of uh, DMOs, where uh, one of the bureau executives came up to you and said, I can't fight this because we're not a core service. And you smiled and said, just watch, I'm going up on stage and I'm going to show you how that core service works. You hold that destination marketing should be a shared community value. I love those words. Explain why. Yeah, yeah, that was a great experience in Virginia. I, I tell that story a lot myself. It is, in my opinion, a core value. Uh, on a, a core service. And core services are based on shared values within a community. Um, we've often talked about, you know, or at least I have, that you want to be on the front end of the spending decisions because what a government will do is make sure those core values are addressed first. And then whatever money may be left over, or if they need money, they're going to take it from the rest of the group. And that's, I think, where destination organizations have been traditionally. When I talk about a core value, I'm talking about things like education, um, where we all believe that education is important. An educated person is a better citizen, a better worker, just a better person in general. Um, we believe in healthcare. We may argue a lot about what basic healthcare is or how to fund it, but we all believe they should have access to healthcare, which is why emergency rooms accept everyone. Call 911 and you'll have an ambulance. Um, we believe in uh, basic core services like sewer and water and electricity and power of all kinds because and we take it for granted but without those elements we can't run the society that we currently have and we would all get sick and everyone would be affected by that people believe that there's some role for government in economic development um, again we may argue about the degree but even libertarians believe that there's some sort of government role to be played there. Those are what I, I would call core community shared values. I think it's always been kind of true, but it definitely is true in this current world. Thanks to uh, air travel, thanks to the internet, uh, even thanks to cable TV. You can now go anywhere and everywhere and see anywhere and everywhere. You can search for things anywhere and everywhere. That has made this whole world very interconnected. And you are now competing with everything and everyone. Um, if someone doesn't have to live in the destination where their corporation is based, they can now live somewhere else. If they can chime into the internet and order something from Amazon from halfway around the world, 
you can decide where you want to move your company or invest in your business because, you know, flight lift is now all over the world and planes are everywhere. Um, and there are so many ways to get from point A to point B. That means everyone's competing against everyone else. And the brand is so important here for a destination to compete with another destination. People are going to have to know about it, but they're going to have to have a positive feeling about it. And they're going to want to go visit it and to experience that. And that's how you get this wheel spinning. It goes back to what Moral Gas has always been talking about, at least for the last 10 years. It really starts with that visit, that first attraction, that first impression. And if you're competing with every other destination in the world, you have to invest then in a destination organization that's going to market your community, market your destination, because they're not just marketing to visitors. They're marketing to potential investors. They're uh, marketing to people who are going to either invest in talent, move there, go to school there, go to the hospital there. They're investing in, in investment. People are going to take, oh, this is a good place to invest my money, these corporations are going to go, or this is where I want to move my company, or you're investing in the actual community itself. Are they going to expand? Where are the kids are going to stay there? Are they going to pick up and move? It all really circles around this concept of the view of the destination and what people's the brand of that destination. And does that mesh up with what people are looking for? Particularly in this world today where Macy's is everywhere and Applebee's is everywhere and Starbucks is everywhere and people are looking for that unique, um, real, authentic experience more now than ever. I think that puts destination organizations really in the, the center of driving a community and it really decides whether a community succeeds or fails. And that's true on a big scale, obviously New York and Chicago and those places, uh, but it's also on small scales. I, I keep pointing to Paducah, Kentucky. They compete on the world stage. They have found a niche in the UNESCO world and they are attracting a lot of attention. And if you look at where other investment decisions are being made, there's a lot of investment going into Paducah, Kentucky that probably wouldn't go if Paducah hadn't had this brand, this image, this value they have. That's basically the argument. Without that, the other things don't work. Let me take you back a, a few comments because you made one that I've struggled with for a while, and that is that almost nobody can say that government shouldn't have a role in economic development. And I, and I think that, that we all believe that they should. And I think most elected leaders believe that they should. And yet the Koch brothers, I mean, these are not uninformed, unsophisticated people. I mean, they're worth gazillions of dollars. And yet they have really taken a very dedicated position against government's rule in economic development and tourism promotion. Why is that? I think we get mixed up with something else. Um, this whole concept of uh, corporate welfare or picking winners and losers. And it's easy kind of to paint us in that circle because too often we as destination organizations kind of 
paint ourselves that way. Well, that's true. And there's actually a lot of fair amount of evidence that this is actually bad policy by the government to offer tax incentives or tax cuts or underwriting or actual outright writing checks to businesses to move to a community. If everyone's doing that, we're just really competing against each other, moving this money around. It's really not good policy. You should actually build, invest in your infrastructure, um, roads and bridges. Um, you should invest in public transportation and the education of your people, and you should actually invest in the de- development of your brand. So there is arguments, I think, that can be made against the type of government activities, the subsidies and whatever, tax cuts that they offer companies to relocate or expand, current companies to expand in their location. And that has been the target for the Koch brothers and a lot of other people. And we can go back and forth on whether that's good policy or not, but you can probably argue both sides. We're the poster child here in Wisconsin with $4 billion going to Foxconn. I know. Uh, That's going to be a case that's going to be taught in universities across this country, I'm pretty sure. Oh, you know it. But when we walk out as an industry and, and talk about room nights, this is a great event because it drives X number of room nights. When we actually make it look or maybe we believe that our focus is to put heads in beds or uh, what is it? Seats and restaurant seats. Yeah. Cheeks and seats. When we talk about it that way, then we're actually, we actually are kind of corporate welfare because we're talking about just promoting and working for the benefit of the hotels and motels and restaurants industry. When what we're doing is something much bigger and grander than that. And that's, that's the key. I think as long as we talk about putting heads in beds, you are going to be a target. Um, and you maybe should be a target because you are corporate welfare. Yeah. But yep. if you move to that broader discussion and actually talk about what a destination organization should do in terms of being the holder, the defender, the definer, the storyteller of that brand, which actually makes everything else work, whether it's the economic development stuff, whether it's you know a university who's trying to get professors live there a, a business that's trying to to get good solid employees to to move to that community i remember when i was in chicago we got reached out by the uh, major league soccer team because international players only wanted to go to new york or la or maybe miami they didn't know about chicago so they wanted help in pushing out the brand that is chicago and make it that desirable location so it really cuts across so many things i think the, the bone of it we have to stop saying putting heads in beds and start moving to how we tell the community story. Well, and that perfectly gets us uh, teed up for question number three. And that is, if we're going to turn people's attitudes around, we need new stories. We need new language. You authored a white paper on the new tourism lexicon, and you've recently added a bunch of more words to the list of, of words that we should be using in replacing some of the typical heads in beds mantras that we have been saying. I mean, and it always drives me crazy when I when I see a, a news article about the money that is being given to a destination marketing organization or is being contributed to a destination organization when it's an investment and we have to just drive that, that word home. So share with us how you identified the right words and the wrong words to use when trying to inspire our leaders to support destination marketing as a shared community value. Yeah, I mean, one of the observations that we've made is that there has been a titanic paradigm shift over the last 
20, 30, 40 years, certainly since my childhood. And that in the political environment that we are in, people distrust and people fear, and that leads them to make political decisions or even personal decisions based on very emotional. Um, and they're looking for people to who they look alike. So we have, and we have politicians who are tapping into this. So they are tapping into this tribe mentality by we're us and they're them and never the twain shall meet. And they have tapped into this emotional lexicon, I would say. So I actually have to thank the Koch brothers for this. When we were looking at the situation in Florida and trying to follow it, we have a an analytical tool which basically captures and scrapes all the social media postings, all the newsletters, all the press releases that every elected official right now in the United States, whether they're at the federal level, the state level, the county level, or the local level, and we're expanding into many other countries now, we have the ability to follow what they're talking about. And we were looking at the Florida situation, and that's where we started noticing that when Speaker Corcoran, who led that fight, uh, kept using the same words over and over again. And we started looking at his speeches, we looked at all his press releases, and every one of them had the phrase corporate welfare and picking winners and losers. So we did some investigation and uh, actually found out the reason they were using him is they had actually tested them with a focus group and they had resonated, Mm -hmm. which then got me to thinking, you know, I've been in politics most of my life. Um, I worked my first campaign when I was 12. Uh, I've done just about every role in a campaign and had the ability to work for one of the most genius and powerful men in Illinois political history and learned a lot. And one of the things I remembered is that we were constantly testing phrases. We're constantly testing how to talk. There's a lot of lot of literature out there, actually, about how politicians have kind of learned this way to talk and connect with their community, which got us to thinking, well, hold it. Well, how do they talk about the things they really like? How do they talk about education? Um, how do they talk about public health? Or how do they talk about healthcare specifically? How do they talk about infrastructure and economic development? And how do they talk about fire and water. My favorite is how do they talk about firefighters? Because everyone loves firefighters. It's hard to find a bad word about firefighters. Oh, yeah. So we went back to Quorum and we just started searching those topics and digging into finding the po- how they were talking positively about it. And then we just basically ran word clouds on it. And we saw words kept coming up over and over and over. And they're very simple. There's nothing really magical about any one of those words, except maybe I always like to point out community. They weren't talking like we talk, which is, you know, what is our return on investment? We drive tax revenue. We support jobs. They were talking very personal. They were talking mm-hmm. about community, about putting people to work, about developing programs that would do X, Y, and Z. We're talking about marketing initiatives when we really should be talking about destination promotion programs. We came up with that list of words. We're actually released 20, we have 20 words now that we released at the annual convention. Uh, we're doing an updated version of the lexicon uh, policy brief, which will be out this fall. And we'll have some examples, just getting people to talk in a way that resonates not only with politicians, because remember the reason the politicians came up with this was to be able to talk to their constituents their citizens. Actually, the other group we need to talk to. They're really one and the same. So they've done all the hard work for us. Yeah. We just have to do it. So I, the biggest example I always use is, you know, don't talk about how many jobs 
our industry supports. Talk about the number of people we put to work in your communities every day. And that's just that subtle shift, forcing yourself to use words like community and people and work or job uh, or investment. Use those words almost forces you to talk emotionally. And that's what we're trying to get people to do. All right. Now to the bonus round. This is where we take a uh, complete veer and go someplace that just is fun. So you say you started your career in politics at age 12. That's amazing. Your favorite movie, as is the favorite movie of all Chicago politicos, is The Godfather, and that your attraction to the tourism arena came from your visit to the 1967 Montreal Expo. With all that, let's go with this. You say you briefly took a hiatus from (laughs) politics. You diverted. You veered. You pivoted to deliver pizza in Chicago. I got to hear this story. (laughs) Uh, I think somehow, some way, everyone in Chicago is somehow connected to pizza. (laughs) I I was actually in grad school at the time at the University of Illinois and needed a part-time job. And I'd moved into the city where my sister and um, there was a pizza place around the corner, and a friend of mine went to work there, recommended me. I showed up with a driver's license, a car, and they had just started their delivery business, um, a place called Pacino's. So they hired me. And I was their first full-time delivery driver, and within months, I was their first delivery manager um, and started that whole program and actually was having so much fun delivering pizzas that I ended up dropping out of grad school and doing this full-time. <laughs> I mean, I was just tired of school and and. At the time, I was studying public administration, which is incredibly boring, at least for me. Mm-hmm. And doing pizza full-time in the city of Chicago when you're really young was great. It was fabulous. I've become a pizza expert out of that. You know, I can tell you who's using real cheese and who's not using real, who's using processed cheese. I can compare sauces. I, I can argue with anyone pizza this pizza over that. But learning to be a really good delivery driver is I guess it's like I should talk to a taxi driver. Maybe it's like that, but learning how to break the rules in a way that you won't, that are still quasi legal. So you drive backwards up one way streets. Um, How do you uh, use the alley system and how do you do all this without getting caught was fun. It's the way I learned my way around Chicago. I had no sense of direction when I was hired. And this is before GPS, right? Yeah. The first way, my first day of delivering pizza was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and I went home and I drew a map of the whole pizza area by hand because I can remember things that way. Um, I think they were going to fire me or something when I walked in the next day, but they saw this map I had done. I was like, okay, this kid's going to be okay. And I got really good. I mean, my record actually stood for several years in terms of number of pizzas that could be delivered in one session. Learned a couple of things, a lot of things about people. A lot of things about people. I, I was surprised that the wealthy people on the, in the Gold Coast tipped rather poorly. Yeah, students and people of modest means, people who work hard every day, are actually the best tippers because they understand what you're going through, understand how to put on a good "oh, I'm so sorry" face when the order gets screwed up, and I'm going to have to take the brunt of the abuse, and how to how to get them almost feel sorry for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, so I don't lose that that customer and i think probably the best thing i've learned was the power of image maybe this ties back to our industry in the pizza restaurant 
the actual pizza making was out in the open. This was before everyone was doing open kitchens and you could sit there and watch them make things, which I'm not exactly sure I enjoy, but the pizza thing was out there um, and you'd see them put all the pieces together, the pizza, all the ingredients, is, put the dough in and put it in the oven. But the best thing is that they would spin the dough on your fingertips, which is actually something I learned to do. You learn actually by practicing with a wet dish rag once you get that, you can move the dough. It's really just kind of bouncing off your fingers. And we told everyone that this was to invigorate the, the dough with air so it would be light and flaky. And there may be some truth to that, but I mean, in all honesty, we were using a pastry dough kind of similar. And the ingredients of the dough and how they interacted with each other and then interacted when you put them in heat was responsible for almost all the lightness and flakiness of it. But by having someone up there in the front spinning it, they could make that connection. That was it, yeah. Yeah, the pizza is fresh because they're watching the ingredients go in, and it's full, the crust is light and flaky because it's full of air because they spun it. If I just explained that to people, it wouldn't have been the same as having an image of someone's, you know, spinning a pizza. And that image was very powerful. That's one of the reasons I think we succeeded so well. So outside of the place where you worked, best pizza in Chicago? Ah, what kind are you asking for? Ah, yeah, there you go. (laughs) I think if you're looking for deep dish, um, my favorite is still actually Lou Malnati's. Okay. Um, yeah. Wholemeal crust, rich butter in there. It's really, really good. They have some great sausage. They're one of the people who are still using real cheese, not the processed kind. I think if you're looking for stuffed pizza, which for those who don't understand is also a deep dish, but they also fill it with everything and then they put another layer of dough on top. So it's actually kind of a pie. And I must, I still think. The place I work for, Bacino's, is best at that. They have the best crust because they're using that pastry crust. Yeah. And they have a really good crust. And they also are still using real cheese as opposed to processed cheese. And most people, in all honesty, can't tell the difference between process and real. And process actually melts better. Um, but if you are really pay attention, you can. If you like really, really thin pizza, Pat's Pizza on the north side of Chicago oh, is really good. I don't know that one. And uh, if you like classic New York style pizza, I always tell people go to New York because it's, it's, it's always fun. And I love New York pizza. It's just got to go to New York for that. Yeah. All right. Hey, Jack, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule for this podcast to share your innovative uh, view and way of explaining what it is we do. Tell our listeners where they can find the new tourism lexicon and other tools that are being developed by Destination International's foundation? Uh, go to our website, destinationsinternational.org. Um, Lexicon's up there. Uh, the original brief we did on ideology is there. The new updated version of community shared value will be going up shortly. We're getting it final proofs on it now. Um, and then the, the new Lexicon brief, which is coming out shortly, will also be there. Uh, and you can find a lot of other cool stuff. Just go up to the right-hand corner and look for advocacy and hit on the advocacy library. A lot of stuff there. Okay. And of course, again, coming up in uh, just a few weeks, the um, Advocacy Summit here in Madison, Wisconsin. You can find that information as well at destinationsinternational.org. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to the corner where it says education, events, and go to summits. It's there. All right. Hey, thank you again, Jack. All the best. And we can't wait to uh, welcome you to the Mad City. I look forward to it. See you. All right. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers, this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Longwoods International, the producers of groundbreaking research, thought-leading insights, and excellent counsel and services to DMOs in areas such as visitor research, advertising effectiveness, image research, and their new resident sentiment study. Learn more about this new breakthrough product and more 
at longwoods-intl.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, our knowledge bank, videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet. That is DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.